He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. All right, everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of Honestly Unorthodox. I have my handy-dandy fact-checker, Kate. Heyo. I have my regular panelist, Dominique. Hello. And I have a total smoke show with us today <laughs> by the name of Shantae Gold. Shantae, welcome to Honestly Unorthodox for the first time. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, I'm so excited. So we have Shantae here because she is a nutrition and exercise extraordinaire. And with the topic today being all of the debate around fat activism, body acceptance, body positivity, Ozempic, and the weight loss um, epidemic and all of the gurus within it, I figured she'd be a perfect person to bring in in terms of what she sees in her side of the field. Before we start, I want to read all of you a quote from USA Today, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Americans don't choose to be fat. Many live within a quote unquote system that they don't control. It's nearly impossible to change a lifetime of eating and exercise habits and stick with them, studies show. Many people live in areas where it's tough to access healthy foods or exercise safely and affordably. The economics of eating in America make high calorie foods an easy go-to. People with obesity are victims of the system that they simply can't control. Thoughts? I, in a lot of ways, agree with that statement. I do feel like there are some barriers when it comes to, you know, where you live, your uh, income, and, um, you know, being somebody who was living in a very poor neighborhood in Los Angeles, um, I felt if, if extremely unsafe to mm -hmm. go outside for walks and um, go to the grocery store. I was constantly being harassed on a daily basis and felt like I couldn't be by myself and yeah. um, access to fresh food and grocery store, you know, I had to drive to those places and parking was a disaster. I got parking tickets on basically like a weekly basis. Um, and so you're almost kind of stranded there. Like if you move your parking spot, you're, you ain't getting one for, you know, you're going to be searching for one for at least an hour before you can find one. And so, you know, cause like thinking about those, those types of things, um, I can definitely see how it could be very challenging for a lot of people to, you know, have, you know, go on a walk, like get those steps in, like they're not thinking yeah. about getting their steps in when they can't walk safely outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's I a do. good point to consider in high crime rate areas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like that quote is a lot of, it's a lot of half truths. Mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I think it's true. No one chooses the circumstances they're in really. I mean, yeah, yeah. no one chooses to consume a, I mean, to be surrounded by bad food all around them and have that, you know, um, to be addicted to sugar, which is really, you know, a big problem, I think, in America. But I think by also saying that, um, I think it's allowing people 
to not take responsibility as mm-hmm. well. I think, you know, you need to have some some amount of, of self-responsibility when it comes to taking care of your body. And I think that should be recognized on a on a national level, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's the worst. You know, I don't think it's a incorrect statement necessarily, mm-hmm. but I don't know how much good it does. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not so much productive. I mean, like you guys said, there are kernels of truth in here. Shantae, right. you brought up a really good example of the, the safety barriers that could, that could pose a challenge to doing something really simple, like a great form of exercise, like walking that requires mm-hmm. no equipment to have to purchase for, you know, people that are live in low income households or, you know, single income households. What I find a little bit, um, I guess, counterproductive about the way that this is written is it makes it sound as if you are just stuck. These are your circumstances. So it's society. Sorry. Um, I have, I have a huge problem with, with that framing. Yeah. hundred percent. I would agree with you. Like the whole framing it as, you know, like victim mentality, really like everything else today is framed. That, that is a problem. Yeah. I always say, or I always try to encourage people to find the people who are just like you, who are doing what you say you can't, mm-hmm. because there's always somebody in that type of environment who made it work, who can find a way. They're resourceful. They put in a lot of time and effort to make it work for them. You know, it's not going to be easy, um, but there are people who, you know, get out of those circumstances and who really thrive. There is this, um, oh, I don't know if you heard of her, Kate. Man, I don't know her name, but it was this um, really, really um, overweight woman and she got into powerlifting. She was a single mom of um, a, a couple of kids. I don't know how many, but she was working like night shifts, like odd on hours, um, a, a black woman. And she is um, now like a professional power lifter and she's breaking world records. And, you know, her, hearing her story, she, you know, um, uh, talked about how shifting her mindset was just, you know, this is just something got to do. Like I'm unhealthy. Um, I really need to start moving my body. And she really found a lot of empowerment and joy in powerlifting and lifting heavy. And now she's like a world-class athlete. It's, it's amazing. And so when you hear stories like that, hang on to it because there are people who are doing the thing that you say you can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just found a her. It looks like she, um, she lost 140 pounds. She, uh, yeah. Wow. So amazing. Yeah. So amazing. And yeah, she's, yeah, she's a freaking rock star now. That's so kind of your name that's really, that's inspiring to me. I, I love, I love hearing stories like that because that just so goes to show you that, you know, a lot of times it, might not even be your circumstances. It's your mindset around your beliefs around yourself and what you're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Here, here was something that I was thinking about in regards to this quote. So I, there was a medical sociologist at Indiana university that looked further into the percentage or the ratio of how genetics played a part in obesity and how environmental factors. So exercise, your diet, things like that played a factor. And Kate, you could double check this for me. I think it was 40% genetics, 60% environmental influence. So, I mean, with genetics playing almost half of a part, it's, 
it, it's hard to argue that genetics we yeah. just dismiss them um as and that kind of speaks to the first statement that people don't choose to be fat necessarily or people don't choose to be obese where i would just want to know what the alternatives what what alternatives these people propose are because when I think of this, I say, okay, even if healthy food were made cheaper, even if access to certain forms of exercise were made safer or um, easier to access for people, if these people already believe that their circumstances are impossible to change, which they said, th then what do they what do they want to do about that? Yeah, it's almost. Um, I have read this book. Uh, or I follow this geneticist, his name is Robert Plowman, and he's done a lot of like uh, genetic twin studies in the UK. Um, and he's done a few studies regarding like obesity and the heritability of obesity. And it is true that it is, it's a highly heritable trait. But the thing about obesity is, you know, if you have, if it's heritable, it doesn't mean that you will be obese. It means that you have predispositions or propensity for certain characteristics like he researched um uh you know society or what's it called like uh satiety cues so like some people they really don't feel that full feeling until a really long time and that's like a genetic predisposition um but the other part of the equation is the environment and the food access, mm -hmm. right? So we're not going to see a huge obesity problem in food deprived areas like, you know, parts of Africa, for example. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think the solution is similar um, to the solution of people who are maybe addicted to drugs, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, it is a biological addiction and it's, you know, you're kind of stuck in the rut of, you know, waiting for your next hit, I guess. Yeah, like you're um, fighting your own chemistry, essentially. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, only you have the power to change. And I also wonder if, you know, I think no one should be shamed for how they look or, you know, that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. But I almost wonder as like, you know, maybe just a thought experiment in and of itself, like if uh, social stigma actually aided in the low amount of obesity that was found in the past. Maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Because now it's almost like shameful to lose weight. Because I know celebrities yeah. that have lost weight have faced, you know, backlash from it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Interesting. Two cents. Yeah, I know Adele was one of them. She oh, lost, like, what was it, 100 pounds? Yeah. And, I mean, she's tiny. Now she's, like, tinier than – I'm not tiny, mm -hmm. but she's probably tinier than you, Dominique, and you yeah. are, like, really itty-bitty. And yeah, so – she, I know she received a ton of backlash from like the fat acceptance or body active or body positivity activists saying that taking care of yourself is a form of body shaming or fat phobia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I don't know how that could make any sort of logical sense. There's also a lot of fitness shaming in the fitness space as well, right? Um, oh. Yeah, body shaming with, you know, yeah. wanting to lose weight and, 
um, just get fit. And, you know, it's, it is looked down upon if, even if you like decide to, you know, want to get leaner, I mean, there's people, you know, commenting on how unhealthy that that is, but, um, just to kind of quickly go back to what you were saying earlier, Dominique, about the genetic factor that plays into it. There's actually a quote that I really like um, when it comes to genetics and how you want to think about it is, you know, genes are, are genetics actually load the gun and environments pull the trigger. Mm, and so um, back in like, I don't know, like 70s and 80s when we had lower rates of obesity, I mean, that doesn't mean that people weren't genetically you know, um, didn't have like the genes to become obese. It's just our environment has changed so much over the years. It's kind of set up in a way to kind of pull that trigger. And now we're kind of experiencing the the side effects of that. Um, but it kind of goes both ways with, you know, people who are extremely lean, you know, mm-hmm. it, you know, they, those types of people, I mean, you try to get them to gain weight and they can't, like they can't eat at a certain point and it's extremely difficult for them. And so you kind of have to think about it both ways. Like, you know, because our environment has changed so much, just as much as there are people that are obese, you know, there are people who haven't changed at all and who have a hard time gaining weight. And Mm so I thought that was an interesting perspective as as well. Genetics do play a large factor into that. Yeah, Bill Maher did a really funny segment on this uh, when he was talking about the obesity epidemic. And he showed a side-by-side picture of what Woodstock looked like in the 60s. And then I think it was Lollapalooza maybe in the 2000s. And he he made the point of look at the crowd in terms of their their body type in the 60s. And he said, you know, there were there's there were ghettos in the 60s. There was poor access in the 60s. There was fast food in the 60s and cake was delicious in the 60s. <laughs> so <laughs> it really has to it makes you wonder Uh, Aside from the fact that fast food is being shoved in our face now more than ever and marketed more than ever, I would just wonder what else culturally is leading to um, the the overconsumption of fatty foods and the the lessened motivation to exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder if there are, um, if there are just more, you know, sugar lobbyists and there's more food lobbyists essentially that, um, fight against, um, you know, putting recommended daily amounts Mm. uh, on our packages, or there's just more chemically processed made foods, which I think do contribute. Um, I think a lot of our food is shit. Like it's really bad. And I'm even a, uh, you know, someone who who consumes terrible food. Um, I think, <laughs> like, of course, I, I can't Dominique says this as a food enthusiast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I don't know. I do think it is hard, you know, it's hard to eat well, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that it can't be done. And I also agree that there are, like, characteristics that may predispose you to want to eat more or not be as motivated to get out and run or inside treadmill run or you know do any sort of exercise um but yeah at the end of the day it's 
it's up to you and only you, and it is not society's job to fix you. It's your job to fix you for mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. That's my philosophy. So I found some um, okay, just different ways that our food has changed over the last 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing, that's really, one thing that's jumping out that's really interesting is just that portion sizes and calorie counts have, have grown in a lot of the foods that we um, would just are like grab and go things. Um, so for example, the average muffin in the last 20 years grew from one and a half ounces and 210 calories to four ounces and 500 calories. I mean, that's more than, that's more than double. And that's, you know, if for 20 years, every morning you wake up and you eat a muffin over those 20 years, that muffin has doubled in, in calories, um, or, you know, in portion size. Um, and people aren't cutting their muffin in half now. God, I love a muffin. Me too. I want a muffin right now. You know what I'll do? I, I will pick at the top of the muffin and then I'll like break the tops of four different muffins and eat them because I feel like I'm not eating a whole one. <laughs> <laughs> That's smart. I like that strategy. <laughs> Very shifty over here with the mind yeah. games. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I think about, um, do you guys, Shantae or Kate or Dominique for that matter, do you guys, you guys have Mariano's out by you, right? Or no? Well, I I, we have Maggiano's. Okay, how about, you guys have Costco, I'm sure. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Costco muffins and their cookies. Oh my God. So I mean, good. Look, I'm obsessed so with their bagels. Good. Oh, I know. They're so doughy and they're like the perfect <laughs> texture. And those bagels, 100%, are double the size, I'm sure, of what a bagel is actually supposed, supposed to be. Supposed to be, yeah, 100%. So and the muffins, like, too, they're gigantic. Yeah. Everything yeah. in Costco is gigantic. I love it. I do too. It's my life. (laughs) So while we're on the topic of trying to figure out maybe how food has changed and how cultural aspects play a role in our perception of health and food, I want to bring us back in time to where fat activism started. So fat activism began in 1969 when an engineer in New York was getting really upset with how people were treating his wife. His wife was a bigger woman and she was being bullied. People were calling her names. And he said to himself, you know what? I'm going to start sending out flyers to spread the word that people who are overweight shouldn't be bullied the way my wife is being bullied. And I would have to agree with that. I think all of us with a conscience and a pulse would say that it is horrible to treat people terribly because of how they look, right? I feel like in typical modern day fashion, we've just allowed this to spiral out of control. And this falls now under that net of normalizing everything that is not normal. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, this has been my pet peeve of being in the industry (laughs) and seeing this trend, uh, especially within my community who has extreme high, high rates of obesity and sickness and, uh, I get really upset when I see large Latina accounts uh, praise fat acceptance and, you know, make these posts and I just don't understand it. Um, but I, you know, just like everything else, you know, it starts from a really good place and it has a meaningful message. Um, and I think, you know, within the fitness industry too, I mean, there's some problematic 
uh, biases within the fitness industry of, you know, expecting to look a certain way, you know, especially, you know, even for me, myself as a nutrition coach, like I know I sell more when I look a certain way, when I'm leaner, Mm -hmm. when I'm, you know, at my leanest, I mean, I get the most likes, the most shares, the most attention. Like that's just like our, how our society is set up and that's never going to (laughs) change, you know? Um, but at the same time, I do think it's important to not encourage people to stay fat just because it makes you feel good. I mean, there are serious long-term health consequences to having um, abdominal fat tissue around your midsection. And, you know, as we age, we lose about, you know, I think after you're 30, you lose about eight to 10% of muscle mass per decade. And so with that, with you're losing muscle mass, you're fat. I mean, imagine yourself at like 50 or 60, you're not going to be able to hold that much body weight on yourself without having to get lose weight. <laughs> you know, eventually you're going to have yeah. to lose weight. Yeah. And I mean, that pressure on the bones and the joints yeah. and what's really bothersome is bringing up the adverse health health effects of this yeah. is a form of shaming. How, and that's part of this, this normalization culture. It makes people so sensitive that now logical fact and things that are actually aiming to help and protect people are considered forms of like harmful information. Yeah, it's the problem of like hypersensitivity and safetyism because I do think it is a valid question to ask, you know, do we want people of all shapes and sizes to be accepting of their own bodies? And I think I would answer that question as, yeah, but you know, you shouldn't, I don't think you should walk around as a fat person and, you know, carry, um, the feeling of, of shame and feeling bad. But I also, you know, I don't know. I I feel like I don't know because I also that know that those feelings may be motivating, right. Mm -hmm. To some people to ignite change, um, but I don't want people to feel bad about the way they look because at the end of the day, I think a base truth is it's true. No one chooses the circumstances that they're, you know, born into or the, you know, characteristics or predispositions that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want people to feel bad about being fat. I don't think people should be ashamed of being fat, but it is unhealthy and I think they should, you know, work towards not being fat and unhealthy um but yeah I don't know I feel like I'm I'm caught and I feel like society is is that way too like you know they're like well we want to stop shame and stop stigma so therefore that equals fat acceptance and body positivity Mm -hmm. and they kind of confuse just accepting yourself with oh that means I need to be proud now of being yeah they're like conflating the two things yeah they conflate these two different things that yeah so dominique do you think that it's possible though to not shame yourself because of your weight while also holding yourself accountable to lose weight for health purposes i mean to not celebrate i mean here's the thing 
your value and your self-worth has nothing to do with your weight. So you could still hold on to that. And that could kind of be your, your guiding, I guess, inner beacon to a degree that you still have your self-worth and your value while also recognizing I need to take care of myself. I I think that, yeah, I think that takes a very anti-fragile person to hold those two things at the same um, time, at the same time, because you need to be, conscious and you know um mindful of those two dichotomies and i think there are increasingly an amount you know a lot of people that are fragile are mentally fragile and can't kind of take in for example a medical professional's advice like well you should work on losing a few pounds because uh, you know, this and that is associated with higher risks of, you know, diabetes, heart disease, whatever. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of cognitive distortions, I think. Um, it's just a lot of, yeah, a lot of issues mentally, I think. Um, I just think it's really interesting how, in myself included, or, or even as a society in general, we tend to focus on obese people as you know i think we have uh some some preconceived notions about why they maybe are that way um and yet we don't necessarily look at people who are suffering from eating disorders in the same way and by uh, of course obesity can also be an eating disorder but i'm talking about like our you know anorexic bulimic people who are incredibly underweight um we look at people like that Mm -hmm. we recognize that they um you know likely are are suffering from uh, mental illness and we don't we we don't yeah. really offer the same um sympathy uh towards both populations um so i just i think that's kind mm-hmm. of interesting yeah shantae go ahead so many thoughts on this um when it comes to delivering the message to folks who are either obese or anorexic. I think the thing that the fitness, not anorexic, but just have an eating disorder, but I think that the fitness industry can do a lot better in is how they communicate that to have that person receive that message. And I think the, um, the conversation solely focused on you need to lose weight. They already know they need to lose weight. Like that's not new information. Um, and that just makes them feel worse. And so it's more so, okay, how can we reframe the way that we reach these people and get them to motivate themselves to want to change? And so some examples of that could be, you know, what, like, what could your life look like in like six, 12, you know, two years from now, if you did, you know, reach your goals? Okay, well, I mean, I would be in less pain, I would be able to, you know, move faster, I'd be able to clean my house and, you know, do more things around my house. Okay. Let's move towards that. Let's, um, find activities and behaviors that will help align you with that future goal and that your, you know, yourself of yourself. And so I think it's just like how we can help them motivate themselves with things that are going to bring value and meaning to their life, to their overall quality of life. Um, 
And so I think one thing that my team and I do really well in is we don't talk a lot about weight loss or fat loss. You know, we talk a lot about behaviors and how to, you know, like routines and how to manage your time and um, how to move and take breaks and your, your mindset and all of those factors, because that is what's going to lead to change. I mean, they, people already know they need to lose weight. Um, and so I think, you know, that is where at the frustration with, I imagine, you know, people who need to lose weight or gain weight, you know, how, where that comes from, because they, they, they already know. And so it's just like, okay, well, how can I do this? And um, what is going to be meaningful for, for me specifically? Yeah, that's a good point. Shantae, have you worked with many people whose whose motivation is the pursuit of validation from other people? So their their motivation really rests in these sort of movements that seek more to um, accept and embrace versus make meaningful change? That's a good question. Yes, I have. Um, I have actually found that there is a lot of people who are in physical and emotional pain because not because of their weight, but their weight just kind of adds to it. But they've they've embraced this identity of, oh, yes, but like, you know, body positivity, you know, I'm really just trying to be positive and accept like who I am. It's almost like they're forcing themselves to believe this because it's popular now and they feel like they should because they're in a bigger body. And even though their bigger body is causing them physical pain and I, I feel, you know, I, I can empathize with that. And I, I feel bad that they're in this kind of like, oh, okay, well, I know I need to lose weight because I am in pain, but also I should be accepting myself for way, for the way I am. So maybe that in itself, it, that conflict is making it harder for them to make those changes. Yeah. So that's kind of what I've seen, but I've also seen like, uh, you know, folks come by and not you know, the change in itself is too hard. And they've, you know, said, you know, I think I just need to accept where I'm at right now. It's kind of Which is hard. also a different kind of noble to a degree right. at least, to, to, to acknowledge that you might not be ready for something. Right. I, I have some thoughts about, I was talking to my husband about this this morning, um, kind of the people who are perpetually not ready for things. I just don't feel like there ever is a time when you're ever going to be ready. And this movement related to accepting ourselves or bettering ourselves and that the self-help movement as a whole seems um, persistent with this idea that just give yourself grace and wait until you're ready. Mm -hmm. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious to what you guys think about that. Like, do you think that it is a priority for individuals to have self-acceptance at all times like because I feel like yeah maybe it's not like I don't know why it's highly valued like I feel like I don't have self-acceptance at all time like I feel like that's something perpetually that I've had to deal with and I feel like that's a very human struggle like everyone's had mm -hmm. to deal with that um 100%. and it's like it you know in some ways it motivates betterment yeah. life. So I don't really know why it's such a, a virtue. percent. Um, yeah, I've, I've talked to my coaches about this too, because I started in a place with hating myself. <laughs> I freaking yeah. hated myself. I wanted 
to change everything about me. All like, I just didn't like the way that I looked and you know, it's, it's not a good feeling to be in mm -hmm. for sure. Like I want to love my body and I want to love myself, but at this moment of time, I don't. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it's more so like, what are you going to do about it is the yeah. question, you know, it's like, are you going to sit here and sulk on, you know, why, or, you know, obsess over why you got here or how you got here? Or are you going to leverage those feelings into actually doing something about it and changing your life so you can get to a better spot? And a lot of times as you pursue these changes, you'll start to realize that it was never the weight loss, really. I mean, you might lose weight along the way, but you find a lot of confidence and empowerment by just changing your life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, chasing after goals and, you know, pursuing them and accomplishing them. And that pursuit in itself builds a lot of confidence in yourself. And so, um, yeah, no, to answer your question, no, I don't feel like you have to accept yourself every step of the way. I think in a lot of ways, people wrestle with this idea like, oh, I need to accept, I need to love myself, even though I don't. But, you know, it's like, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Kate, go ahead. And then I'll, I'll follow yeah, up to Shantae's point Shantae. there. It's kind of along these lines, but um, so I have some friends who, um, I, I don't want to say subscribe to the body positivity in, in any kind of extreme way. Um, but they're very anti diet culture. Um, and do mm. you feel that, you know, I, I, it's my understanding that you do like macro counting with, with some of your clients and, you know, behavior changes that are ultimately going to likely lead to weight loss, even if that's not really the, the focus goal is watching the scale drop. Um, how do you feel about that kind of anti diet culture? And do you think it applies to like all things? Or is that just our, you know, Weight Watchers, keto, um, South Beach diet um, application? I don't like anything with the word anti in it. <laughs> I'm just yeah. like over it. Like, <laughs> like just go over there. Like anti-diet, uh, diet culture. I mean, I do feel like there's some problematic aspects to diet culture in itself, but I mean, let's be honest, like you need dietary interventions to get some shit done sometimes. And that does require, you know, tracking your macros or, you know, tracking some sort of, you know, portion control and, you know, doing some sort of point system. And so, you know, I, um, again, I mean, it just really goes back to how the fitness industry is communicating this information to uh, people so they a don't get an eating disorder and b don't um, um, feel like they just need to stay fat for the rest of their lives. Um, it's more so like switching the language to you know let's get strong, let's you know mm -hmm. um, uh, feed our bodies well enough so we could perform at work well enough, and so we can. Uh, you know, live long for our children and model healthy behaviors to our children, right? That's the kind of like mindset shift that we as a collective in the health and fitness industry need to start pursuing. I, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I, I think about this frequently as someone who is in treatment for anorexia. Um, I just, I don't ever remember the compare and despair contributing to my 
starvation. Um, and again, this was what, 16 years ago now. So I, I, I really don't, couldn't remember and tell you what the culture around fitness and nutrition was like back then. But what I can say is in some cases, a lot of what contributes to anorexia and eating disorders is like this, it becomes self-fulfilling and it is like a nice substitution for some sort of emotional distress. So it's like very much um, maintained by control in, in a weird way. And I just wonder what what the fitness industry would have to look like to prevent possible eating disorders or can we blame the fitness industry for rises in eating disorders? I think um, this is a great question because uh, my coach and my best friend just did a workshop, a mommy and me workshop talking about how to speak about food and your body and nutrition mm -hmm. around your children. Yeah. And um, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts, Kaylin, you were talking about how, you know, your anorexia was triggered by one girl's comment about your body, yeah. right? I thought that was mm -hmm. so interesting. And, you know, it really is just like that, you know, that one comment that like changed yeah. like so many years of your life. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to talking about your own body and your own relationship with food in front of your children, I mean, that's re really where it starts, right? I mean, we can't really yeah. blame the fitness industry <laughs> for yeah. that, but it, it kind of just starts at, at home as it always does. And so yeah. mom, parents have a responsibility to, you know, um, not say, oh, I'm fat in front of your kid and talk about, you know, I'm dieting, I can't eat that, or, you know, that's bad. And, um, you know, I went, uh, I was talking on my stories yesterday about my relationship with my, with food over the, you know, as a youth and growing up and I grew up in a very restrictive household and my mom basically monitored everything that I ate, um, oh, wasn't wow. allowed to have any junk food um, at all, like ever, um, only one time per week on a Sunday, I could have a piece of candy. And, you know, as I got older, I, you know, she got upset at me for, you know, eating like dessert and things like that. I don't know. I have, I have all kinds of stories. Um, but obviously that kind of triggered years of, you know, being in this space where I was feared of food and where I would eat in extremes and I, you know, had a really unhealthy relationship with my body. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, how you talk about food and how you introduce food to your kids and what you expose them to, um, is just the beginning to, you know, build healthier habits and healthier mindset around food as you age. Kate, Dominique thoughts. Um, yeah, I think everyone has their own relationship with food. And I think I, you know, totally agree. It does start in the home. And I don't know, I think Shantae put it perfectly. I do too. I do too. So let's move into some of the aspects of these body positivity movements now and how they can contradict the, the, the good intentions that some have tried to set forward. So I think that the body positivity movement has had positive effects. I think that it has, um, helped people maybe better embrace themselves despite there being stigma. But then part of me wonders how, just how heavy is the stigma of, of body weight. I, I, 
I mean, we hear that there's stigma in race, stigma in gender, stigma in this, stigma in that. I think that's always going to be uh, weaved into society. So, like, I just, I don't really like how we keep falling back on stigma because that's just an innate human tendency to stigmatize differences in people. I don't yeah. know what you guys think about that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I think it comes from our tribalist instinct. Like, it's another way for us to categorize people and create a, <clears throat> a hierarchy um, out of people's characteristics. And then also, I think in today's day and age, it's another way to create like uh, a victim narrative. Um, because I think there, like, I think I said this on the last podcast, like there are countless characteristics that we don't even think about most times. Like, you know, beauty, <laughs> Um, height, uh, you know, intelligence. Um, there are so many phenotypic characteristics that, you know, people have a wide range of. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I really don't, you know, I think it's good. I think like um, the no bullying movement that has swept across, you know, our, our years, I think that's been you know, a net positive. Um, and I do think like, where are the people that are actually being shamed for, you know, all of these different, I don't know, characteristics, like I maybe you know, I'm, I'm not a fat person. So maybe I don't know. But, you know, I think society has really worked hard at not shaming um, people for their bodies. Like, I don't know how much further we have to go. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I yeah. Know. Go ahead, Shante. I mean, I'm not fat either, but I definitely can see fat people being shamed. You know, especially in middle school and high school, yeah. where it's the most you know vicious <laughs> stages of our lives. That, do you think that happens explicitly, like in schools still? I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I think, like, with the zero bullying, um, you know, policies and, you know, I agree with you. Pete, you know, girls especially can be cruel, like, emotionally uh, in those years. Um, and I don't doubt that it does happen. I, I just, I, I don't know how much use it is to keep on pushing, you know, this this narrative i think all um, you have to do is log on to yeah. you know instagram and scroll the comment section of you know an overweight person doing pretty much anything to find an absolute cesspool of comments from people granted these are people you know sitting behind a computer being keyboard warriors and maybe those are not things that they would say to this person you know, face to face. Um, but I've seen, you know, especially in the fitness industry and um, more so powerlifting, right? Powerlifting and even CrossFit or, or sports that are kind of welcoming to all body types. It's not a physique sport. Um, and, you yeah. know, it's not uncommon to see a video of, of someone who is heavier, especially women, um, get absolutely berated in the, in the comment sections. Yeah, mostly yeah. by mostly by men too. What do we do about that though? Like what is the solution? I mean, how can we make people less cruel and, you know, you know, uh fall into their stereotypical, you know, 
insults. Yeah. Like, what is... Are we helping by continuing on this, bo- this like, blanket body positivity movement? I don't know. I guess that's my question. Like, what can we yeah. do about these crazy people? Yeah, because I agree that, like, they're, oh, my God, social media and comment sections where there really are no consequences of yeah. behaving like an absolute animal of a human being. Right. Um, I, I would wonder what the solution would be too, because I think about me with my eating disorder. I felt so bad for my family after I left treatment. They, they couldn't say anything to me. I could tell they were walking on eggshells. They didn't even have the balls to tell me things like, wow, you have color back in your face because they were scared that that would make me feel like I gained weight and then I would fall back into starving myself. So to some mm-hmm. degree, but like I, I can't expect people to behave and modify their behavior the way my family did. Mm-hmm. And I can't take away gatherings with friends where there's food. I, I would never tell a grocery store to, to you know, bend to the will of my eating disorder. So in those degrees... <sighs> I mean, I guess, you know, with that example, and I think that's a really great point. It's nothing can be done, right? Because you can't control what other people say or do to you, but you can control how you respond and how you carry those comments. I mean, easier said than done, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. um, because it's never easy to, you know, even, you know, myself growing up, my mom would always make comments about not always, but, you know, sometimes make comments about my body that would really hurt my feelings and I would cry and it would make me feel really insecure. And, um, um, so I can imagine, you know, if you're living like that your whole life, that it's, it's really hard to yeah. you know, manage that and you'll start to believe it and you'll start to have these, you know, limiting beliefs about yourself and low self-confidence. Um, but I mean, um, the only thing, like I said, the only thing that you can really do is, you know, um, how you comment back and what you're going to do with that information and um, not allow it to affect you so much. I mean, I don't I really know what else to do with that. I mean, in our coaching, we host workshops on how to manage emotions, especially when it comes to people t- um, making comments about your body, because people get nervous about going to family with the holiday or going to the holidays with their family and seeing people who have a tendency to make comments about what you're eating and what, you know, your body and like how you're not losing weight and how mm-hmm. you need to gain weight. And so, um, we really try to provide the tools necessary for our clients to, you know, react in a way that is neutral and puts boundaries with those family members. Um, and that in itself is empowering, right? Because yeah. most of the time people who are saying these things to you want a reaction out of you, right? Um, they want you to be upset or, you know, to say something. And um, a lot of times, you know, saying nothing and carrying on with your life is the best, you know, thing that you could do. Mm-hmm. Totally. In terms of accommodations. There is a recent um, drug that has become wildly popular in the past couple of years called Ozempic, which is supposed to actually be used for diabetes. So people are now using it as a weight loss tool. And I saw, um, Kate, can you look this up for me? I forget what article came out about um, they were suggesting surgery and pills for 12 year olds that were overweight. I forget exactly who initially came out with that. I think that is 
absolutely ridiculous. I mean, that would be like saying if you, you know, for all of the crack addicts that are out there and heroin addicts, just, you know, find a needle center, find some Suboxone and just continue to take it. And I feel like that is wildly shaped by our culture of wanting to make everything normal. Well, you know, there are there's a big movement out there in the addiction world that like, you know, it's it's very yeah, I have. Yeah. And I have like a lot. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, that hits yeah. really close to home for me because my brother died of a fentanyl overdose five, five years ago. I just don't know how he would have fared now with everything that's out there and all of these very strange ways of trying to accommodate drug addicts. I mean, my brother would have told you, and Kate, I know you have personal experience with this too. I think anybody that has struggled with addiction to any sort of drug, they don't need half-ass accommodations and they don't need gentle reminders and substitutions for drugs. They need cold turkey, hardcore accountability. So, uh, Kate, Yeah, I was just coming back at you with the the information about Ozempic. So the FDA has approved, Mm -hmm. um, Ozempic is like the brand name, right? But it's like Wagovi um, to treat obesity in children. Um, it is actually a diabetes drug, um, but, but it has been approved by the mm-hmm. FDA um, to treat obesity in children. And it works by suppressing appetite and then reduces caloric intake and leads to weight loss. So Barry Weiss had a whole uh, debate panel. I was listening to it. it. Yeah. That got intense. Yeah, it got intense. Um, and the whole thing was that like, this drug was tested in adults mm-hmm. you know, with diabetes. Um, and then it was later found that it suppressed appetite. Uh, so it was used for then adults, but to use it for kids when they're maybe down the line, GI issues, or this, this would be a drug that then they would have to stay on, you know, a lifelong, a drug. lifelong a life that we're literally accommodating quote unquote, accommodating people by giving them a lifelong dependence on something. Right. And I get, um, I don't know what the doctor's name was, but uh, she was a, a medical doctor from Harvard. And, um, Oh, was that, um, Chink got, she has a very like unique name. I know yeah. I have it in my notes. And she was, um, she was talking about how, like, kind of what Shantae was saying easier or earlier that like, you know, doctors can tell um, patients until they're blue in the face. Like you got to lose weight, you got to lose weight. But, you know, um, they don't, you know, they don't give them like a behavior plan or Mm -hmm. a dietary plan, or even if they do, um, they can't force them to follow it. So her argument was like, well, this is in supplement. We still want, you know, patients to uh, follow a regimen of diet and exercise. But this is, you know, kind of in some ways it, it was akin to like harm reduction. Like, um, a, like a head start. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, that, it worries me. And it is also kind of like a scapegoat for food industries, you mm-hmm. know, um, mm-hmm. and lobbyists as well. Because they can say, well, you know, now there's a drug to manage your weight. So you can keep eating all my shitty food. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read this this quote from an article about Ozempic over here. 
After being injected with Ozempic, a user could try to imagine a moist slab of black forest gateau or a calorically dense half pound baconator bacon cheeseburger from Wendy's and their body literally will physically revolt with spas- with spasms of nausea and waves mm-hmm. of ill feelings throughout the day. So I mean these yeah. are these aren't necessarily mild side effects. No. Yeah. I mean so uh, I have some thoughts. (laughs) Um, So when I initially heard about this, my reaction was exactly the same. You know, I was like, of course, another medication for just thrown at people to, you know, mask whatever, you know, issues that they're going through. And I honestly didn't really look too much into it. Um, usually when stuff like this comes up, I just, I'm just like, stay focused, <laughs> stay focused on the, <laughs> yeah, stay away, stay focused on the business. But, um, after doing some research, I follow, uh, an obesity specialist. His name is, uh, you probably know him, Kate Spencer Nadalski. And he, uh, was talking about this medication and, um, kind of what we were talking about earlier about how some individuals have genetics that are, that work against them when it comes to obesity and their, and regulating their hunger and satiety hormones. And so these children, no matter, you know, what their parents do, um, can be looking, constantly looking for food. Um, and, at a certain point, like the parents get desperate. And so what he was saying was, you know, the guidelines are really, I mean, I haven't read the guidelines, but what he said was, I, you know, yes, they are recommending this medication, but A, it should only be temporary. And B, they highly recommend doing it in conjunction to lifestyle changes because um, it, it can be very, very, very challenging for these families and for these kids to implement lifestyle changes and behavioral changes. Um, a lot of ways, this medication can almost give them like that head start that they need to get them moving and get them in that right direction. And, you know, it's a medical intervention. So it means that this needs to happen like now. And sometimes the lifestyle factors, they take so long that it could be hurting them um, in the long run rather than like getting in there, getting in the lose weight, get that momentum going and then, you know, fade that Mm -hmm. out eventually. And so I thought that was an interesting perspective. I, you know, didn't really think about it from that way, A, because, you know, I'm not an obesity specialist, so I don't know all the intricate details of how obesity works and the genetic factors of that. And so um, in that perspective, um, I can see how medication can play a role in that, um, you know, being helpful in some ways. Do you think that compares to uh, when God, what was it? The lap band surgery, like bariatric, like bypass. Do you mm. think that compares? Like it kind of gives people that initial head start, and then over time, the onus is still on them to maintain, yeah. I guess, the, the weight loss. As long as there's support afterwards. I just talked to somebody who went through surgery, and she had like counseling for a few weeks or a few months. Um, Mm -hmm. and they were teaching her about mindful eating skills and portions. And so she had to go through, like after the surgery, she lost all this weight. She had to go through like counts, like learning all of these different tools. So she could obviously maintain it afterwards because it does happen. Like people get this surgery thinking, you know, 
they're going to be thin for the rest of their lives and then they just go back yeah. to their old habits. And so there needs to be some sort of intervention in place to help guide them and learn these skills so they can actually keep the weight off over time. It looks like uh, yeah. about one quarter of patients uh, who undergo gastric bypass or some other bariatric surgery regain all of their lost weight by 10 years. So it's basically got a su- success rate oh. of 75% and a failure rate of about 25%. Yeah. That's so disappointing because I've heard, God, that that surgery has to be painful and that recovery yeah. is brutal from yeah. that surgery. I've heard of people, I mean, they're they're shrinking or I guess stapling off their stomach so that their stomach is the size of what, like a hard boiled egg. So a yeah. lot of these people, every time they try to eat after that, they end up throwing up their food because that they physically can't. house the level of food anymore especially if you haven't been proactively working on the skills that Shantae you were talking about I mean that just sounds miserable to spend that kind of money only to go back to square one yeah it's almost like um you know it's a trick I think this ozempic or the lap band surgery it's like people think oh it's you know that that's the fix Mm-hmm. You know, I, I press that button and I will be cured of my obesity. But I that actually made me think of a thought I had when I was a kid. I struggled gaining weight. I was actually diagnosed with failure to thrive. You know, I was, I was born with a heart condition. So all that played in together. Um, and I eventually needed a G-tube um, for supplemental nutrition. And I remember, oh, wow. yeah, um, I remember having this reoccurring thought like all my parents wanted was cal you know caloric intake and they would buy me pints of haagen and feed it to me at night um oh. <laughs> and um and I just had this reoccurring thought like ah oh, my body does so much without me having to monitor it like my heart <laughs> without me having to monitor it my stomach empties without me having to do anything you know everything happens you know automatically but my weight management like that is so frustrating to me I remember having this this thought that like oh I just wish my body would deal with it and I wouldn't have to you know wouldn't be up to me to gain weight or I wouldn't have to put in a conscious effort so I can totally empathize and get in that mindset of probably Mm -hmm. the opposite way you know like it really is it takes a conscious effort for someone who's predisposed to not getting full, you know, within a normal range. It's probably, you know, very, very difficult and frustrating. And there is no easy fix to it. And that's what um, Dr. Um, Spencer was saying was that, you know, even for some folks putting in so much effort for them, it's a lot, a lot of effort, but effort doesn't always lead to outcome, right? Because you can yeah. be putting all of this effort in and the thing that needs to get done is still not getting done. And so that in itself can be really frustrating. And I know, you know, we experience it with our clients as well, because they feel like, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm doing all of these changes. I've, you know, I've made all of these changes. I'm still not, you know, the scale is still, you know, only three pounds, you know, I've only lost three pounds and it's like, I know it feels like you're doing a lot of work, but I mean, you need to do more work. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, I forget what podcast I was listening to the other day. I think it was a guy who might be in his 
late 50s by now. He was an advice columnist back when advice columns were a thing. <laughs> and he he's a gay man that worked mostly with uh, helping or giving advice to other gay men that were in relationships. And while that side isn't related to this, he did bring up, you know, sometimes people just need to hear that they need to get over themselves. And what I have found is that nine times out of 10 people are able to hear that and be just fine. And I think in this fix it culture and normalization culture, we have convinced ourselves and everybody else that just get over yourself and do it is something that's too harsh or too mean. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm just really biased because my dad raised me with that type of mentality, like Gordon Ramsay style parenting. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like it, there's a lot to be said about the ability to say this is going to hurt really bad and it's going to sting, but I need to get off my ass and, and do more than what I'm just than what I'm doing. Excuse me for putting this in behavioral terms, but <laughs> it's almost like having to place the complaints on extinction, you know, 100%. like saying, right, like just saying, get over it. Okay, like, you know, by them saying that they're looking for what access to empathy, maybe escape from the actual action of doing the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I think you're right. There comes a point where it's like, okay, get over yourself. Like, just that's not going to fly anymore. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. I mean, yeah. that's how I operate. I have always mm -hmm. had – my mom was exactly the same way, Kayla. Like, yeah. she was not I mean, afraid. She's like, I tell you these things, and I know they're going to hurt your feelings, but, I mean, mm -hmm. you need to hear them. Like, I mean, it yeah. just is what it is, and I'll cry and, you know – you know, tell her that she's mean. <laughs> that's, that's just it. I mean, she, we move on, you know, and I do feel like we've kind of lost that of telling people the truth and the straight facts of what they need to hear. And even though it might sting and hurt and hurt their feelings, it's like, well, do you want to change or not? Like, yeah. <laughs> do you want this or not? Yeah. Oh, well, especially in the scope of this self-betterment comes this obsession with work-life balance, which trust me, I understand. I hate when people tell me, oh, you don't believe that burnout is real, Kayla. You don't believe that work-life balance exists. I never once mentioned that. My focus is on the obsession with it that becomes very unhealthy. And I, I just, I have a hard time... <laughs> It, holding any patience in reserve sometimes for, you know, this, this <laughs> obsession with keeping everything in perfect ratios and perfectly rationed off. That's just, that's not how life works. And for in, in the, the realm of saving time, we're obsessed with saving time. We spend a hell of a lot of time watering down our communication and avoiding conversations and making things sound not as harsh. And I don't, I don't think we're connecting the dots with how much time we're wasting doing all of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did that make any sense at all? I just went on a little tangent. No, um, that totally did. I think, yeah, <laughs> people try to control their environment, but I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is a lot of shit is uncontrollable and you kind of just got to roll with the punches. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's fucking life. Yeah. yeah. I think people are having trouble in this day and age just accepting life mm -hmm. yeah that's part of acceptance right acceptance right. act yeah. is just like you know yeah. this is just it is what it is like what are you willing to accept either you accept 
the circumstances at your work or you do something about it and you change it and you do something else. (laughs) And that either way, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be more work than what you're doing now. And so that's another part of acceptance, right? It's like either tolerate the bullshit of the work or you tolerate the hard work and the hustling and the, you know, everything else that you have to do outside of that to get out of that situation. Yes. All right. I am pulling up a quote to, uh, while we wrap this up, because I just loved it so much. Robert Greene, he said, too many people believe that everything must be pleasurable. Mm. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Just so succinctly put, one sentence, if I could wrap up modern day in one perfectly phrased sentence, I think that would be it. I mean, I, we're just, we're chasing pleasure and things feeling good all of the time when that was never something that was realistic or even thought about when I was younger. So people can't sit in the discomfort anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's hard, but that it's something it's, it's become a one liner that I, I spew out from time to time, you mm-hmm. know, um, I just, <laughs> whenever I am, you know, for example, in pain or frustrated or, you know, what have you, I need to constantly remind myself, you can sit in the discomfort. And I do this relentlessly to my boyfriend, which I'm sure he loves um, whenever it. he's frustrated. Um, but yeah, people can do hard things and you can sit in the discomfort and you will survive. Yeah. Yeah, it builds resiliency and character and, you know, builds confidence. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's far more empowering than a lot of the forms of empowerment I've seen out there. So, yes. Well, guys, thank you for joining me today. It has been a blast and a half. I can't wait till next time. And uh, we'll look forward to that. Thank you, Taylor. Have a good one, babies. Adios. (laughs) 